Actually, it's not difficult at all. I thought last week's message was fantastic. I actually listened to it. uh, I was in Alaska, and I was just in the Fairbanks airport coming home and uh, listened to it and was really enriched by it. So thank you for the invitation to be here while your pastor's on sabbatical, and Vicki and I are delighted to be here, and uh, we've been looking forward to this a lot. Many, many connections. I think every one of you, if we were to talk with you, we'd find uh, a number of different connections because the believers in Christ always have have connections, that's especially true in this this community. I want to begin by uh, reading uh, from a portion of the Bible that was written while God's people were in captivity uh, in Babylon, about the 5th century or so B.C., God had a spokesman named Nehemiah, and that's where the the last two messages that Robin gave began this, what we call the book of Nehemiah, the the writings of Nehemiah about this time in history. So I'm going to begin uh, reading from uh, Nehemiah. We're going to cover the first eight verses of chapter two uh, this morning. So here is, I believe... Hopefully, if I get this thing on, whoops, it's this one right here, no, next one, right here, all right, okay, I'm a PowerPoint guy, I like, I like visuals, so, uh, great. This is Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heavens and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, said, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me off, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my requests. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. When I was uh, on staff at Good Shepherd Community Church, it was a wonderful church, of course. Uh, I had the privilege of overseeing missions, and, and, uh, and in that role, 
uh, Vicki and I got to travel all over the world uh, doing development work, re- relief work, and also visiting missionaries that the church had sent and that we supported. And, and as missions pastor, the, the process of selecting and sending missionaries can sometimes be tricky uh, because anyone can, can say, the Lord told me I need to go to such and such a place overseas. And the expectation is then, okay, so we're all supposed to just automatically start writing checks, right? Isn't that the way, pretty much how it works? The problem is, not everybody who raises their hand and says, you need to send me, is, is qualified. I mean, there were some people that I dealt with, they were just plain lazy. They didn't want to work, and they thought going overseas would be a great place to disappear and still get a paycheck. Uh, some were social misfits. If a person doesn't have any friends here in the U.S., chances are they're not going to make friends very well overseas. Um, it, it's, it's a real problem when someone says, they want to, I want to go do church planting in Moldova, but they don't even hardly attend church in in the U.S. And so uh, the Lord told me to go is sometimes a smokescreen. But I have to say sometimes I was surprised. I was surprised, uh, happily surprised. I remember talking to one young lady who said she wanted to go to uh, serve in an orphanage in Russia. And the idea seemed preposterous to me. But the Lord's hand was clearly on her and she went, and, and she did a great job. My parents were missionaries. And many times, many times, I have wondered how I would have responded to my dad if, if I had been his pastor. And he would have told me in the early 1950s that God wanted him to go be a, a missionary in Alaska. He grew up on a small dairy farm in upstate New York, and And he had heard about isolated Indian villages in interior Alaska that didn't have missionaries. And uh, and now, now, my dad was not at all charismatic. I mean, he was was a cessationist when it comes to the sign gifts. He was very conservative theologically. But he said God told him to go. He didn't say God impressed on him that he should go or that he felt the Lord was speaking to him. He said, God told me, I want you to go to Alaska. So with scant information and almost no guidance from the mission organization, which is the same organization that Robin's sister's with, the Interact Ministries used to be called Arctic Missions, dad packed up his wife and four little children. I was about two, and he left. No language learning, no cultural training, nothing, no orientation. He welded a hitch to his station wagon, and he loaded up some household belongings, and he took off, took off from upstate New York, and he drove 5,000 miles to Alaska uh, in the days when the road was really bad, the Alcorn was bad. There, Once he got there, he sold the car, and he loaded us into this leaky boat, homemade leaky boat, And he headed down the uncharted Tanana and Yukon rivers, notice no life jackets, uh, and, and, and really just a vague idea of where we would end up. 
After 300 miles on the river, we came to a tiny village called Cochrane's. It's not even there anymore. Where the missionaries convinced Dad to stay the winter because they said they had heard that the next village down uh, had no housing available, and so we, we stayed the winter in, in Cochrane's. I mean, absolutely crazy. It's one thing for a young man to, to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this ri- ridiculous thing and you know, go somewhere in the world. But to take his little kids with him, his, his wife, when you, you don't, I mean, put them all at risk? Think again, dude. <laughs> now, my dad is with the Lord now. But in 2019, I asked him if he ever had second thoughts, especially when he was heading down the river in that boat and didn't know where he was going. I said, Dad, did you ever think, oh, my goodness, what did I, what did I get my family into? Never, he said. The Lord called me. Which is exactly what the prophet Nehemiah would have said in 445 B.C. The last two Sundays, Robin has has set the scene. And today, in Nehemiah chapter 2, we will see Nehemiah do something very risky. You might even say foolhardy. Because the Lord told him to do it. And by the time we get to, to, to chapter 2, uh, Nehemiah had been praying for four months. Now, here's, here's a verse that Robin read last week, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the, prophet, the son of uh, Hakaliah, in the month, in month of Kislev. Chapter 2 begins in the month of Nisan. Now, Kislev is no, December, Nisan is April. So, For four months, Nehemiah had been praying. But he didn't just retreat to a monastery to to pray. While he was praying, he continued to serve the king. The last sentence of chapter 1 says, I was cupbearer to the king. And then chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And now notice that last sentence, I had not been sad in his presence before. Now because of his job, Nehemiah couldn't be sad. Uh, he couldn't take PTO when he was feeling down, couldn't take a leave of absence. He not only had to work, but he had to be upbeat. It, the, the Persian kings believed that their very presence called, caused people to be, to be merry. And so to be anything but happy in the king's presence would be a, a real insult to the king. So Nehemiah shows up for work. He continues to, to serve the king his wine, even as he grieved and he prayed uh, uh, about this situation. Now this brings up two very important and, and almost contradictory principles. Number one, principle number one, uh, There is a time to fake it. (laughs) There is a time to to both figuratively and to literally put on your makeup and do your job. Years ago, I had a men's ministry uh, intern uh, who I had asked to teach one Tuesday morning. And our men's meeting started at 6 a.m. And at 5.30, my intern walks in. And he says, I, I don't think I can teach this morning. 
I'm really feeling unsettled. I'm feeling unsure of myself. I didn't sleep well last night. I, I just don't feel like it would be authentic for, for me to teach today. I looked at him and I said, then fake it. You have a job to do. I gave you a role to fulfill. Got 150 guys coming in 20 minutes and, and they're expecting to hear a lesson from God's word. Part of maturing is learning how to do what's expected of you regardless of how you feel. You don't always feel like getting out of bed. You don't always feel like exercising. You don't always feel like leading. You don't always feel like making another meal. You don't always feel like teaching. You don't feel like mowing the grass. You don't, you don't, you don't feel like listening to someone pour out their heart for the third time and saying the same things. Nehemiah couldn't say, I need a time out. Something triggered me and I, and I need a safe space. No, Nehemiah, go get the king's wine and take it to him. There is a time to fake it. But there's also an opposite principle in this text. Here's principle number two. There is a time to reveal a sad heart. For four months, Nehemiah had, had concealed his feelings, but the moment had come now for him to let the king in on what was going on in his heart. End of verse uh, 1 again. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? Now the, the word translated sad is literally badly made. Isn't that a great phrase? What? A, a badly made face is a sad face. It's the same Hebrew word that we find when um, in, in Genesis chapter 40 when when Joseph asked Pharaoh's officials who were imprisoned with him in the jail, Joseph asked them, he said, why are your faces so badly made? Why are you so sad today? Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? So Artaxerxes sensed something that was going on. Why are you sad? Uh, when you're with somebody every day, it's, it becomes easier to read their face. Maybe the king noticed that Nehemiah's face was thinner. He was fasting while he was praying. Four months of, of, um, of this had taken its toll. But Nehemiah's countenance betrayed the stress somehow. The king knew that his servant wasn't sick or he wouldn't be there. I mean, you wouldn't be sick serving the king. So, so he showed up for work, but his face was sad. And he correctly concludes that this can be nothing but sadness of heart. Because God never intended for us to, to carry our, our griefs and our sadness, our burdens alone. He designed our faces to reflect our hearts. Now it's more visible in some people than others. Some of us work hard, I'm one of them, to try to hide our feelings. It doesn't always work. But... but have you ever been with someone who just out of the blue asked you if something was wrong? My inclination is always uh, to respond, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just tired or, or something else. I think there are at least four reasons why we do that, why we kind of deflect. The first reason that comes to my mind is it's, it's not the right person that's asking the right question, or the question. How you doing is, is sometimes more of a statement, a greeting, 
then a, a, a question. I, I like walking in the early morning, and I pretty much walk the same four miles, and, and uh, so I often encounter the same people uh, when I'm walking. And, and I usually say good morning and just a little wave of the hand or something and, and walk on by. But sometimes the other person, without either of us breaking stride, will say, how you doing? That's not a real question. And we both know it's not a, a real question. Other times, the question may be genuine, but you kind of are uneasy because you, you sense that you don't have enough of a relationship with that person to really share what's going on in your heart. And that's perfectly okay. Perfectly okay. In fact, you may have gotten burned sometimes sharing something with someone who it turned out well, wasn't really trustworthy. I mean, you shared something that was you thought was in confidence, and, and that person went and talked to two of their friends and told them the, whatever it was, and, but told them it was in confidence. And then each of those people went and told a couple of their friends, but told them it was in confidence. And, and then someone comes up to you and, and says, Hey, uh, I was sorry to hear, and what they say doesn't even really resemble what was going on. And you realize that what you shared with one person has now become gossip. That really hurts. If somebody shares something with you confidentially, keep it to yourself. Pray about it. Ask the Lord for wisdom. But if you're going to share it with someone else, get, get permission from the original person first. The only exception is if the, the person that shared it with you is a, is a danger to themselves or, or to someone else. But churches, I know this from experience, churches can be hotbeds of gossip. Particularly when it comes time for prayer requests. Somebody will say, this is confidential. Okay, so they should shut up right there. Don't talk anymore. This is confidential, but I want to share this with you just so you can pray about it. No. Don't share it if it's confidential. Once you've been burned, um, you, you tend to become really careful about who you share things with. So it has to be the right person. One of my favorite poems is this one from uh, Diana Mulock Craig. Oh, the comfort of feeling safe with a person. This is great. Having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great poem? I hope you have friends like that. I do. What a relief it is when you can share with the right person. A second reason I think we're reluctant to share what's in our hearts is it's not the right time. Now imagine if the first time Nehemiah had this thought about going back to Jerusalem, he would have, he would have announced his intentions to the king. Hey, hey, Artaxerxes, I want to go home. I thought about it last night. I want to go home. Is that okay? I mean, timing is really important. Third reason is pride. Sometimes we say I'm fine because, well, sometimes I say I'm fine because I don't want to appear weak. I don't like being weak. Who wants to be weak? 
I want people to think I'm strong. I want people to think I've got it all together in every way. My family is perfect. My marriage is, is, is always great. My health is fine. My walk with the Lord is good. My decisions are good. I'm, I'm feeling secure. I'm feeling confident. My ego wants to project strength. And then there's one last reason why we stay closed. And it's fear. Now, fear can be a good thing. Because once you open this box of your heart, what's going on? You can't close it again. Fear can keep you from getting hurt. At the end of verse 2, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid because he was about to pull back the curtain. He was about to tell the king that something was not right inside himself. And he was also about to say, oh, and by the way, king, something is, some things are not right with you, your highness. You are not okay. Your rule is not okay. The way you are leading your empire is, is wrong. Your, your foreign policy has, has some flaws. And in fact, it's causing me some deep personal grief. So this is a point of, of no return for, for Nehemiah. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. God save the king. Daniel used this phrase when addressing King Nebuchadnezzar. It was, it was just a proper etiquette thing. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah needed the king's sympathy before he could move forward with his request. Why am I sad? Well, your majesty, imagine a city in ruins. Imagine a city where where your people, your ancestors are buried. I mean, my parents' graves are, are desecrated. The city is defenseless. Now, Nehemiah knew that King Artaxerxes would be aghast at all of these ideas. What? Someone trampling on your, your parents' graves. And, 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 and Nehemiah laments the, the proud gates that once were in Jerusalem. I mean, now the timbers have all been burned for firewood. Foreigners are trampling everywhere. Now he's walking a very thin line here. On one hand, he wants to restore Jerusalem, but he knows that just a few years earlier, Artaxerxes had issued a decree stopping Ezra's temple rebuilding work after the king heard a rumor, which is cooked up by, by Ezra's enemies, that the Jews had a secret plan to rebuild the temple, rebuild the cities, and then secede from the Persian Empire. The report was not true, but Artaxerxes believed it and had issued a decree stopping Ezra's work. Nehemiah knows this. This makes the request that Nehemiah gives here extraordinary. He's asking for a reversal of the law of the Medes and the Persians. I mean, we have an idiom that says, says if something it cannot be changed, it, it's like the law of the, the Medes and the Persians. But Nehemiah knows the king's mind must be changed. He can't say it, but the real urgency here is not so much, well, in fact, it has nothing to do with ancestral graves. What's at stake is God's cosmic story of redemption. As, as Robin said last week, Nehemiah knew well the, 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 the writings of the prophets. 
He knew about the promise that God had made to Abraham and Moses and David. He knew that Messiah, the savior of the world, needed to come, would not come from one of the other nations. It needed to come to the nation of Israel. If there's no Israel, where would the Messiah, where would he come from? Right now, the, the Israel doesn't exist. There's no city of Zion. There's, what would God do? So for Nehemiah, this is not about graves at all, but about Messiah. Verse 4 offers the first hint that the king would respond favorably. The king said to me, what do you want? What is it that you want? For most of us, that would have been a wide open door. I mean, the teachable moment has arrived. If you're doing a sales presentation, when the person says, okay, so what's it going to take? You, 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 you don't push anymore. You close the deal right there. Go for it. Go for it, Nehemiah. Strike while the iron is hot. But that's not what Nehemiah does. Instead of answering the king's question, Nehemiah prays. The king said to me, what is it you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And the obvious principle, you cannot pray too much. You can't pray too much. Nehemiah, don't you think that four months of praying is enough? I mean, you, you got your answer. It's right here. Charge forward, bro. Not Nehemiah. King asks, what is it you want? Uh, hang on, your majesty. I, I need to pray. Martin Luther was well known for his prayer life and his early morning prayers he made this famous statement, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. The, the, the king holds out this blank check. And Nehemiah says, wait, I, I think I need to pray before I write anything in there. And we all agree that prayer is important and powerful, but I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't know if I've met somebody that says, oh, I think I, I regularly pray too much. As much as Nehemiah had already prayed, and as much as he knew his success was completely dependent on God's work, he still takes time to pray here. That, that's a strong example. He knows that only God can change the king's heart. I like the living translation, New Living Translation of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it. God guides it wherever he pleases. So God's work, Nehemiah knows God's work and human responsibility are, are, are compatible. They are not contradictory. For four long months, Nehemiah has wrestled in personal grief, with, in planning and wondering, is this the right thing? He probably had doubts. He had fears. For four months, he did his part praying and fasting. But without God's intervention, Nehemiah knew that this conversation with the king would not produce anything at all. The king says, how can I help? Verse 5. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Jerusalem where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, when Nehemiah uh, started praying about the condition of Jerusalem, I, I wonder, it may never have occurred to him that he would be the one that was actually going. But at some point, he switched from the role of intercessor uh, to, to the one actually leading the initiative. Because here he says, I want to head up the rebuilding project. 
That it becomes obvious in chapter 5 that he is actually asking the king to appoint him governor of Judah. This is a really big request. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him. Now, we have a pretty good idea of what this actually looked like, thanks to a, an inscription uh, from a couple hundred years before. Uh, this is from uh, the Babylonian king Ashurbanipal. This is in his palace in Nineveh. That you see the king reclining at one side of the table. He's, he's, in the, he's lifting a, a wine glass or a, a container. And the queen sits upright near the king's feet, but she's facing him. She's also lifting a drink, while attendants with large fans stand behind both of them. Why does Nehemiah mention the queen? It's a good question, and scholars speculate that, that maybe she leaned over and whispered something in the king's ear. Or maybe Nehemiah was noting the presence of the queen, queen just to have a, a witness there. We don't know. But whatever it is, Artaxerxes makes an immediate decision, which is couched in two questions. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? How long will it take and when will you get back? It's a, it's a yes, but answer. Yes, you may go, but I want to know when you're going to be back here. You can't stay in Judah. I, I will grant your request, but I, I need you here. You're doing a great job. I want you back says two things. First of all, it speaks very highly of Nehemiah's character and work ethic. I mean, basically, he's a slave. He's a servant. He has no rights. And although Nehemiah's heart was in his homeland, he was completely committed to the role that God had given him in Persia. My favorite quote from the great missionary from the 1950s, Jim Elliott, is this one. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt Every situation you believe to be the will of God. Nehemiah was all there in Persia because that's where God put him. And when he got back to Jerusalem, he was all there. Are you all there wherever God has you, even if it's not really where you want to be? Are you making the most of every opportunity? Are you glorifying and serving God happily? Because this is where he has you. You are where you are because God wants you there and he has something for you to do. The king respected Nehemiah. The second thing I notice is Nehemiah demonstrates, as did other Bible characters, Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Esther. He demonstrates that it's entirely possible to, for a worshiper of God to live and work honorably in a hostile environment. It's not always easy, but it's possible. Nehemiah was the employee of a pagan king, but he was also a devoted believer in God. You can serve and work uh, in, in a secular society while honoring Christ. Uh, the, too many Christians just retreat. They retreat to Christian communities. That's not the answer. That's not how the gospel is going to spread. Living for Christ can be very risky. It means you might be vulnerable. But the Lord has been asking his followers to be vulnerable and to take risks for a long, long time. When Jesus sent the 70 people out to his followers out to heal people in the surrounding villages and towns, 
Uh, he didn't give them cell phones and, and uh, credit cards and transit passes and pepper spray and say, okay, now go, go tell these people about the gospel. No backpacks stocked with protein bars. Uh, he said, oh, go barefoot. And if somebody offers you a place to, to stay, great. Uh, if not, just, just move on. Be vulnerable. But don't be a burden. I'm sending you out, he said, like sheep among wolves. You ever feel like a sheep among wolves? Welcome to Jesus' tribe. Head down the river without knowing where you're going and without even having enough provisions for the very first winter. Now, we're not told Nehemiah's answer to the question about how long this work was going to take, but he apparently offered a time frame that the king liked. Look at the end of verse 6. It pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. Now, Nehemiah 5 says that he was governor in Jerusalem for 12 years, but no doubt the time that he requested here was not nearly that long. Most likely uh, it was you know, maybe a year, uh, because less than a year later when the, work had, the initial work had been completed, he reported back to the, to the king, and then the king reappointed him for a longer period of time. But having served, uh, secured the, the king's approval, verse seven, in verse 7, Nehemiah asks for two letters that will have the force of royal law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. The first letter would be addressed to the officials of the territories through which their entourage had to travel. Verse 7, I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He wants a letter for safe passage through potentially hostile territory. Nehemiah knew that he could follow the Euphrates River for the first 700 miles or so uh, up to Aleppo. This was friendly Persian territory. But once he left the river, it was another 300 miles through Syrian territory and then Samaritan territory before he reached Jerusalem. And you know that in ancient times and today, there is no love lost between the Jews and the Syrians and the Samaritans. The Syrians and Samaritans were subject to the Persian king, but that didn't mean they would treat Jewish travelers very nicely. So Nehemiah asked the king for an official document uh, requiring these governors to provide the same food and, and uh, supplies and protection they would if Artaxerxes himself was traveling. And then he asked for a second letter. I'd like another letter granting me access to building materials close to Jerusalem. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park. The word is, uh, the word is literally paradise. It's a, it's a forested park, a beautiful area, lots of trees. So he will give me timber to make trees for the gates of the citadel by the temple, guarding the temple, and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Now we have to understand that in the ancient Near East, uh, wood was a prized commodity. The, the uh, best forests were nothing compared to the forests that we have around here, the, the Doug, our Doug fir forest. I mean, our forests can be harvested every 50 years and, and grow up in 50 years, it's right there again. Their trees grew very slowly, and there weren't that many. To rebuild the temple, Ezra had, uh, had uh, requisitioned trees from Lebanon, the same Lebanon forest that King David had in, in uh, 
1,000 B.C. But these forests were 100 miles away. And so it's a long ways. So the trees had to be cut down, floated down probably the Leontes River, and then fastened together into rafts, and they were floated south to Joppa. From there, they were loaded, carried back overland another 35 miles back to Jerusalem. It was a time-consuming and a very labor-intensive thing. And, and uh, so rather than go through this whole process of importing the trees from Lebanon, Nehemiah says, I'd like to make lumber from the King's Park right by Jerusalem. That, that would be like asking if you could log the trees in, in Happy Valley Park or, or along the Portland waterfront. Could I, could I just get these trees? These are really close to where I'm, I'm building. Could I have those, those trees? Now, Nehemiah knows that Asaph, the keeper of the King's Park, would never go for it. I mean, uh, especially because Nehemiah doesn't just ask for two trees. He asks for all the wood he needs for the city gates. And could you build my house, too? Could we build my house with this lumber? And, uh, uh, of course, Asaph is a government official. Government official's job is to say no. And and, uh, especially when it comes to natural resources, and so he has this no face on. I mean, you can just imagine. Nehemiah goes to Asaph. Uh, what do you want? I I want timbers from oh, those trees right over there from the King's Paradise Park to rebuild the city gates. Yeah, you you and everybody else wants those trees. The answer is no, only by requisition. So Nehemiah pulls out the letter. Artaxerxes says I can have all I want. Yes, sir. How can I help? We'll get those trees. Second part of verse 8. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Let me leave you with two thoughts to close. Number one, nobody is too big for God. Nobody. Not Asaph. No government official. No king. No boss. No sibling. No school administrator, no school board president, no governor, no president, no spouse is too big for God. When faced with impossible situations, pray, plan, and wait. Um, You haven't really prayed until you've learned to wait. Relax. God has this. God has this. He really does. He is infinitely more concerned about getting the glory and doing what he wants than you are. Relax. Changing people is what God does best. It's not your job. And number two, don't always opt for the safest option. This is what we're conditioned to do. But it's not always God's way. What would have been the safest thing for Nehemiah to do? Well, the safest thing would keep his mouth shut and and keep serving the wine, take your salary, and enjoy life. Life was good. But it's not good if God wants you to do something and and, and, uh, you're reluctant to do it. Safety has become a god in modern times, especially since covid Everything bows to safety. In in 2020, citing safety, the government shut down everything. Churches, schools, businesses, everything closed the doors. 
The whole world bowed to this God of safety, even though, ironically, apparently didn't make it any safer. But from airlines to health care to educators and government officials, the, the mantra was and still is, your safety is our highest priority. I mean, how many ads say that? They start that way. Your safety is our highest priority. On one hand, that sounds nice. I'm glad you don't want to hurt me. Uh, no, nobody likes to get hurt. Nobody wants to take unnecessary risks. But if I read my Bible right, in order for us to be Christ's messengers of the gospel, we have to not be safe. In the 1990s, traveling with in Africa with the organization called World Relief, I, I saw a lot of war, horrible war, and famine and death and disease, heartbreaking stuff. And, and on one 1998 trip, I traveled with the president of World Relief to assist in some needs in, in South Sudan. Now, when you go into war zones, you, you see really bad stuff. And I saw really bad stuff, lots of disease, uh, lots of horrible, horrible atrocities. But what I wasn't expecting to find in this war zone in South Sudan was a thriving church. When the missionaries were kicked out, In 1964, it's like the Holy Spirit went to work. And unbeknownst to any of us, while this war is raging, the churches not only grew, but they came together. I mean, we're going there, and, and, and their buildings were destroyed, but they're meeting under trees, and here are five denominations all worshiping Christ together. Hundreds of people, thousands of people gathered to, to pray and to hear God's word. Services lasted for hours. And they had so little. And as we prepared to leave one village, the uh, elderly pastor, his name was Andrew Bull, the only ordained pastor for 52 congregations. That's how many were under him. He asked us for help, and this is what he said. I wrote it in my journal. We need training for church leaders. Everyone has left the traditional religion. We are not Muslims. We have converted to Christianity, but we do not know what is really Christianity. That's what he said in English. So tell the people in America to come teach us what is really Christianity. (laughs) The believers were birthed, but they were not mature. And uh, so I hear this speech, and as we were taking off from this dirt airstrip, I I looked out the window, and, and in my heart, I'm in my mind, I'm trying to rationalize why we should not help. Why we should not help. South Sudan is too far away. The logistics are, are too complicated. It would be too expensive. There, there could be physical dangers. Some, some people we sent there might get malaria. They might, something else might happen. Somebody could even die. But we did go back. We sent lots of teams back. Leaders got training. Churches grew. And they are still growing. I talked with a lady who was just there a couple weeks ago. It's very expensive. It's very hard. In fact, when I was in Sudan, September 8th, 2000, that's when I was struck with severe back issues. I had to be medevaced out to to Kenya. Those back issues continue today. It was not safe, and it was totally worth it. Totally worth it. Safety is not God's highest priority. Safety has never been his highest priority for his people. God's glory is his highest priority. All through history, God has called his people to do unsafe things. 
Countless believers have died doing exactly what Christ wanted them to do. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example. He left the safest place in the universe to come to earth to live and to preach where it was not safe and they and the people killed him. Can it be unsafe to stand up for Christ? Yes, of course. But the world has never been safe for believers. First century Christians lost their jobs, lost their lives, had got scattered all over the Mediterranean. The world will always be the world. The question is, will Christians be what God wants us to be? Will the church be what the church should be? Or will we go for safe? In C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver asks Lucy's a question about whether the lion who rules Narnia is safe. And I love the answer. Safe? Who said anything about safe, Mr. Beaver says. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Let's bow our heads. I want to read Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Lord, Without you, we are really nothing. We have nothing. With you, we have everything we need. And we thank you for this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.